Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. David, who do we have today? Well, you know what, John? We have Ido Banek. He is president and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, and he's a former official of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Hey, guys. Great to be on. Welcome, Ido. Ido, can you can you maybe start? We we both know that palliative and hospice care is an essential part of an integrated healthcare system, which we don't have. But maybe start by, if you don't mind, introducing us to kind of what is palliative care and what is hospice care and what's the difference. Sure, happy to do it. Um, and let's to ground ourselves, let, let's just kind of go back a little bit to uh, the 60s in England, which was a, a swinging period, but also a, a time when the hospice movement uh, really got its start with Dame Cicely Saunders at the St. Christopher's Hospice. And the, the movement sort of uh, migrated across the pond, started out with the Connecticut Hospice in the, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And by about 1978, we had a Medicare demonstration of the hospice uh, benefit. And it, it would be uh, four years before that hospice benefit sort of became part of the law. And uh, all that took a lot of work in Congress and, and at what was then uh, uh, HICFA and, and ultimately CMS. Uh, but really, in the beginning, it was a hospice benefit that was established uh, in this country. It's important to recognize, though, that uh, although all hospice care is palliative, not all palliative care is hospice in this country. Contrast that with the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, hospice really doesn't exist in much of an organized way. And what we call hospice is called palliative care. Confused? Yes. So the, the bottom line for this country is that we have an organized hospice benefit that's in law. And we have a palliative care benefit that we speak about that's much broader, uh, that exists in institutions as palliative medicine and rarely in the community. And that's something that we're, we're starting and trying to build. And so what is palliative care? Well, palliative care is uh, ideally interdisciplinary, person-centered care, either in an institution or in the community that is really centered around what the individual needs. It could be medical. It could be Social, it could be psychosocial, uh, but the idea is, uh, and and I want to I want everyone to sort of draw a a kind of a picture in their mind. But this is a picture that Dame Cicely Saunders actually drew. You have a person as the hub, and you have a series of spokes around them. Those spokes are their various needs. Around those spokes are other circles. Those are the people who meet those needs. Some of them are social workers, some of them are nurses, some of them are chaplains, and some of them are physicians. And that is a good definition, I think, both for what the hospice benefit is for a limited amount of time at the end of life and what the palliative care benefit is for a longer period of time further out from the end of life. I want to I actually pick a, pick a fight with you on that one. Though. I think what's remarkable yeah. about palliative care is it's one of the only areas of healthcare where you start with what does the patient want? And yeah. for me, it's in addition to being person, whole person focused care, it, you actually at, not just look at what they need because the, 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 the hierarchical healthcare system often tells you what they, you need or defines it. Most extreme situations in some countries like Japan, where they don't even necessarily tell you how sick you are 
or 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 the historically what you were sick with to to a, a hierarchical system to one where actually palliative care starts with what does the patient want and 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 and, and addressing the whole person and i just think mm-hmm. that's that's what's remarkable about it sort of reef grounds i think uh what healthcare could be if it's kind of a, a, but built around the humans as opposed to the healthcare industrial complex. Uh, yeah, you're, you're not. Yeah, you're not. Definitely not picking a fight with me. I completely agree. I think that yeah, it starts with what what the individual wants, and that want is kind of defined by folks being educated about what their options are, and the options shouldn't just be limited to the poking and prodding stuff that you can get in the institution. It should be much broader than that. So the typical example is. I want an air conditioner. It's not a luxury that's actually going to keep me comfortable and at home. How can the system actually pay for that instead of having me decline to the point where I need to be in an air conditioned place called a hospital? So there's a lot of things that you know came over from uh, from England in, in the '60s, and, and a lot of them sort of have uh, have moved and evolved uh, since then. So what's what's happened since uh, it made the jump over the pond? Well, the, the most significant thing that happened since then is, first of all, uh, the hospice benefit uh, itself grew, became a part of the of the Medicare program. There are good things about that. Uh, we have a defined uh, benefit and, and it, people are able to access it. We have bad things about that. It's kind of a limited box that we've built. Um, it's also important to recognize when the hospice benefit um, came over the, not the pond, but moved north to Canada, that's when the words palliative care were actually coined uh, by a physician named Balfour Mount at McGill. So palliative care, because hospice doesn't translate well into French, palliative care came to mean hospice plus uh, a more expansive set of services that were available either in the hospital or in the community uh, further out from, from, from the end of life. I always wonder what the Balfour Declaration was, but now I think I understand it. And so what about the, you know, on, on Medicare? Because the other thing, you know, they didn't at this time. They're... Don't don't let Ito get out without ex- describing exactly what, like from a person-centered, Ito, what is what is this thing called hospice? What For those who don't really understand it, what 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 is the hospice part of the hospice benefit? Sure. So the hospice part of the hospice benefit, as currently defined in the Medicare statute, just requires a couple of central things. First of all, interdisciplinary care, a whole bunch of different people providing a whole bunch of of different kinds of care for individuals who have a prognosis of less than six months to live, importantly, and it is not curative care. It is in order to choose hospice care, one has to give up uh, curative care and receive in order to receive the palliative care. So lack of concurrent care, uh, prognosis of less than six months to live, and interdisciplinary care. The other part, which is kind of the secret sauce of hospice care, two other parts, uh, actually three. Uh, One is more than 5% of the workforce needs to be uh, volunteers. Uh, That's number one. Uh, Two, uh, individuals uh, and their families or loved ones get access to care. It's not just the patient. It's the patient and the family that's that's the unit of care. Um, And uh, related to that, after an individual dies, their family or loved ones get grief and bereavement support for an additional 13 months. So what I just sketched out is the kind of the Medicare definition uh, of hospice care. And how broad is this workforce? I mean, you mentioned, you know, volunteers, family members are involved too, but there are there other sorts of non-traditional sorts of therapies that are uh, that are provided? 
For sure. So this is this is the original kind of flexible kind of, in a sense, managed care benefit because there are certain required members of the interdisciplinary team. So that, that would be a nurse, a social worker, a couple of different kinds of, of, of therapy, a physician, medical director. Those are some of the required members of the interdisciplinary team that they're in the conditions of participation. But there are also sort of non-required members of the interdisciplinary team, uh, such as art therapists, music therapists, and other kinds of therapies that can be uh, that can be used and should be used, actually. I went to an event just last uh, week uh, on art and music therapy. And the difference that music therapy can make at the end of life uh, can sometimes match, you know, morphine in terms of pain. Uh, so uh, definitely into all kinds I have, of I have a question about that too, but John, you go ahead. You interrupt my interruption first. Yeah. No way. I mean, I know you were hanging out with the French ambassador and I know you were talking about yeah. uh, music yeah. therapy. And I know yeah. that you're, co- a, a, as a committed uh, uh uh, artist yourself, uh, musician yeah. yourself, you're kind yeah. of biased, but really sure. drugs versus, versus the, the, the banjo. Well, it, you know, so I used to think that too, and it's not the banjo. It's not someone coming, walking around and sort of strumming an instrument. It turns out that when you look at the literature, the, the breath of an individual, the way in which they um, literally breathe can be affected by the speed of the music or the, the, the tension and, and the release of the music. And studies have shown that art therapy generally and music therapy specifically does offer uh, pain relief. And I think that it's really important if we're going to be kind of interdisciplinary and kind of non-medical, non-poking and prodding to really have an open mind with respect to all types of things that can relieve pain at the end of life. Is morphine important? Absolutely. But it's one of the tools. Uh, it's one of the arrows in the quiver of the of the interdisciplinary team. And it's for, for the same reason. Certain people can be touched by uh, chaplaincy and spiritual care. And for other people, it's irrelevant. Uh, same, same thing. Some people, uh, benefit from, uh, music or art and other people uh, benefit more, uh, from some other things. So it's really important, again, if we're going to be person centered to say, what, what does the individual want and what are they going to respond to? What's going to be effective here? And those are all things that hospice and palliative care have at their disposal. John, I knew you were going to ask the one about music. And, I, you know, I saw that your, your remarks about, you know, it's not just sort of the strumming of the guitar and all that. But, I mean, as I understand, you're a drummer. I mean, to what extent is, like, drumming and hardcore drumming a part of uh, the, the palliative or hospice experience? Well, I would say it's it's funny. I, I was I was at an event also last week, and somebody came up to me, and they said, hey, aren't you that drummer? Yeah. And I, I kind of smiled, and I said, yes, I am. But, um, you know, the reality is anything uh, that um, – in the arts can be a part uh, of palliative care. That, that I don't mean to diminish uh, the science uh, of medicine, uh, but the reality is that you know sitting around in a drum circle for someone who has dementia can sometimes be therapeutic. Uh, so I'm I'm really and and you know I'm not coming at this from a uh, a, a kind of high level sort of artistic sort of perspective. Um, but the reality is it's the rest of the healthcare system that's poking and prodding people and over medicalizing people. And I think that uh, as people get seriously ill and as they develop all sorts of social and psychosocial needs, there are many things that end up working. Well, and, and I, I mean, he's giving you a hard time and about to make some snarky remark about, about the clash yeah. 
but uh, but should I stay or should I go? But it's a it's a it's mm. a at the end mm. of the day, there's no question whether it is music therapy or art therapy or working with animals that the uh, the that the the what is so exciting about palliative care and and, and at yep. the edge is hospice, which is really more end of life, is we're bringing the full person emotionally, spiritually, they're back into the curative care loop. And what I find remarkable is how often the care that's designed to be, to be, to make people present and comfortable at end of life can often extend life because you're addressing the whole person. It's really, and it's, and and we're just, we're, we're this between 2016 and 2060, you probably know these statistics, uh, Edo better than I, we're going to go from, I don't know, about 40 or 50 million people over the age of 65 to over a hundred. It's fastest growing part of the population are people who are going to be have multiple chronic conditions. And so we as a healthcare system have to get better at this. Um, I think 39-ish percent of all people in their lives will get cancer. And you know, the cancer is much more prominent in, in, in parts of the world where people are living longer and we're doing a really good job extending life. If we've got, or if we're going to extend life, we have to get this combination of care right. But I actually, I think it's really exciting. And I think what what you are doing in palliative and hospice could have lessons for curative care much, you know, at 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 a much earlier stage that isn't end of life. Senator, Senator, what is your question there? You know? Well, and, well, let me let me let me let me answer a question you didn't ask, which is so so what 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 can we do here? What changes do we need to to both the hospice and palliative care benefit, really the entire system, uh, in order to make sure that we have enough people to actually care for the folks who need care? Because we're running out of money and we're running out of people. So here, here's what I would say uh, to that. Uh, first of all, uh, right now we have a, a hospice system that was that, that was designed to care for the people who are dying uh, t- uh, in 1982 or 1978. Not now. More than half of the people who receive hospice care right now have dementia, not not cancer. And it used to be more than half had cancer. So the, 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 the old rules that say you can't have concurrent care, you can't have curative and palliative at the same time, you have, a, have to have a prognosis of less than six months, don't really work well for dementia. Why? Because people can really live a, a long time. And we treat that as if that's a bad result. So the hospice is demonized and made to discharge these patients into the rest of the healthcare system, which, as you just said, really isn't designed to meet their needs there either. So one change the hospice benefits so it allows for concurrent care, which has been tested. Turns out it doesn't actually cost more money to give people access to palliative and curative at the same time. So that's number one. Yeah, go ahead. No, so, you know, I was going to say, I think you've been a proponent, you know, there's this Medicare Advantage hospice carve-in, and then I think you're talking about like the Medicare care choices model. And, you know, is that where things are going? And it sounds like, you know, on the one hand, if it's uh, if it's higher quality and it costs less, you think it would be adopted. On the other hand, the way our system works, you know, maybe that's going to be its death knell. So I, I would say that, you know, right now, the Medicare Advantage program is uh, is in a, an interesting period with respect to, to palliative care, non-medical supports and services, uh, uh, supplemental benefits. The benefit is sort of whatever they say it is. 
So uh, I, I think we're definitely going in a direction of more of these benefits being available through Medicare Advantage. Uh, as a former government person, I think it's really important that we help to define those benefits. So we've been talking about palliative care now for about 15 minutes. What's the definition of palliative care? Well, there's one in the hospice statute. There is no community-based palliative care benefit that one can wrap their arms around and say that's the definition. So if Humana has a benefit and United has a benefit and Anthem has a different benefit, is that a good thing? Well, maybe, but we should at least have a, a bottom line, a standard below which you cannot dip and still use the words palliative care. And so that that's been our perspective. As you know, I don't think it's a good thing. It's why we in, in the at the care you know care centrics our serious illness program really is a social first clinical second model right but 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 has certain standards because i think without that in in a world in in a in a in a in a world that's kind of backward looking in terms of innovation which is typically healthcare i don't think right. we're going to we're going to pull people forward to non to to atypical forms of healing unless you set that standard and i what I what I what I'm excited about in the in the uh, the the, the Medicare with well, the distinction that I think David you were trying to draw is that the hospice uh, however, John however clumsily but yes the, go ahead the, the hospice benefit where 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 we would actually integrate an end of life benefit into Medicare Advantage um, but doesn't address that curative piece was sort of there's this other model of the the Medicare I think it's the Medicare Choices model where you're actually permitted to get access yeah. to curative care. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because yeah. you know, too much, I think, of this palli- this end, palliative is mistaken for hospice. Hospice right. is sort of a, a fire and forget economic model where you've got six months to live and we're just going to push you over here. But there's this right. new model that the research came out and it was pretty interesting. Can you just describe it? Because it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and actually the Medicare Care Choices model, and I was C- I was at CMS, I was on the selection panel for that, stands for the proposition that you can actually receive hospice-like and curative care at the same time. So the t- conventional wisdom at the Office of Management budget was, look, if you give people access to curative care and palliative care in hospice at the same time, then you're going to double your spending, or at least you're going to spend more than you would have otherwise. What the research shows is that's wrong. Because of your point, John, when you give people access to all of the kind of the pieces in between the rusty sort of healthcare system that doesn't work, all the things that they've been wanting, more psychosocial supports, more care in the community and all of that, they seek more of that and less of the poking and prodding on their own. They self-select. And so what ends up happening is, you know, my mother, for example, has stage four cancer. She should be on hospice. The reason that she's not is because she doesn't want to admit that she's dying and she doesn't want to give up curative care. But there is no curative care. It's more of a psychological issue than it is a medical issue. And once you say to that person, you're not giving anything up. You can sell out all that stuff anytime you want, but you can also get all of this stuff anytime you want. More people choose that. There, there's another thing that I think is really And it's important. cheaper. I mean, that's, it's just, well, I really want to underscore, like, I don't, I, you've been, stuff. you've been making this point, but I don't think people have internalized yeah. it, that when you give people access to whole person care, the medical yeah. industrial complex costs less. It's profound. Yeah. It's really exciting. Less David, get excited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's 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 precisely uh, uh, true. It's also true, I think, that in terms of equity, you know, there are groups of folks who have been traditionally um, 
uh, kept out of the healthcare system by the, by the medical industrial complex. And we're talking to groups who have been traditionally kept out of the medical industrial complex and saying to them, you know what, give all that up. Now, now that you're at the point where you've actually accessed that care in order to get all of this care in the community. And I think that's a really hard pill, no pun intended, to swallow. So if we take away that, that hard choice and we say, not only in palliative care, which we're going to define and create the benefit, right? We're working actively on that. But even in hospice itself, then we're actually going to see that more people get more of the care that they need at the right time. I think we should insist on that as a right. I mean, David, why are you so quiet on this issue? It's important. I, I, I enjoy it when you get all kind of wound up and worked up. Before I thought, where you're going before, I was going to have to reach over and get a tissue because it was such a nice story that you were telling. But I, I like it, righteous indignation. But I want to ask something about a little something a little more complicated. Medicare is complicated enough, but what about when you bring in uh, Medicaid and deal with a dual eligible population? How does, how does that all work together? Uh, not well. As, as, I mean, as you know, I used to be uh, the deputy director of the duals office, the Medicare Medicaid coordination office. And you would expect that if someone has uh, hospice care, that that benefit would sort of work really well with whatever they might have under Medicaid. Unfortunately, it, it doesn't because and it doesn't for uh, for the personal care benefit uh, that Medicaid has, especially. So uh, you get and not to get in the weeds too much, but you get access to AIDS through hospice. You also also get access to personal care aids through Medicaid, especially if, if you live in a place like New York. Uh, and sometimes those two benefits, although they should work together, uh, don't work well. Uh, and people end up having to figure out which aid to keep under which benefit. We're working to fix that problem with my former office, but it's one of those bump ups that unfortunately occur. Uh, you know, a, a different question. Um, yeah. Okay, we've got this. Let's say we are, are, are successful at providing access to all of this yeah. psychosocial, person-centered care, even in the curative system. Right. Where, are we, where are we going to find the people? I, I think that's a really powerful question, and I didn't know whether you had any ideas or policy recommendations. Yeah. I mean, so policy uh, recommendation number one, let in any uh, body from Russia or Ukraine that wants to, uh, uh, you know, provide support in this country. And I'm, I'm half uh, kidding, but I'm half not. I mean, this immigration is going to have to play a role here, um, especially when it comes to nurses. Uh, you know, if, so, you know, we have a broken um, immigration system. I think there need there is bipartisan support uh, for making some changes, but we've been unable to do that. We've got to get past that. And that unfortunately- 10,000-ish medical professionals stuck in the immigration system right now that aren't moving. Right. And, and many, many more that would many, many more that would love to be stuck uh, in the system. And so, you know, one, I think we, we need to make some uh, changes there Two, uh, I think we, we are we are still quite proprietary and, and territoriality and territoriality sort of plays a role. Only nurses can do this. Only social workers can do this. Only nurse practitioners or physicians can do this. We have the scope of practice. Um, has to be made more flexible. We don't represent physicians or nurses. We represent the enterprise. We represent the people who get the care. So we need more flexibility uh, when it comes to that as well. And then we need to prioritize 
the personal care workers, the folks who are really the backbone of uh, both the Medicaid and I would argue also the uh, serious illness uh, system. You should not get paid more working in Amazon than, than you do being a, a, a personal care worker. Uh, and it should be a priority to figure out how to massively increase their, um, their compensation so that we can actually compete. And then we'll find the workers. So other than immigration dropping off over the last uh, couple of years, any other impacts from the big uh, you know, global pandemic that has been uh, among us as, as it relates specifically to palliative care and hospice? For sure. I think burnout. I think folks are, are burnt out. And I think the, the great resignation that we've seen across the country ha- hasn't spared the hospice and palliative care community. Folks are worn out when you're dealing with serious illness. Uh, the, you know, folks are dealing with serious illness, but when you add COVID uh, and all the the, the related uh, restrictions that came along with it, it really it really took a toll. Uh, cost, uh, you know, when the price of gas is, is five six dollars a gallon, and people have to drive from homes that might be twenty five miles uh, apart. Remember, hospice gets a fixed. Cap, essentially capitated fee. Yeah. So anything you do has to be has to be within that. Um, so that's it's been a really uh, a tough time for uh, the workers. Uh, but I think and and I'm 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 cautiously optimistic that we're going to see some progress in the next uh, couple of years, uh, and we'll be able to provide for the workers, and we'll be able to really build the palliative care benefit that uh, that our folks deserve, and then also provide flexibilities in the hospice benefit, which has been stuck in time for about forty years. John, last question to you. So, Ida, what's the best musical music therapy that that David and I should try that'll help heal? us and our families, if we're going through a period of, of difficult illness, it's a really fascinating area. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, people swear by, obviously people swear by classical music, uh, and, and, and it's, uh, and it's impact. I will say this though. I, I visited a, a patient once with a uh, music therapist and we get in there. It's an older African-American woman and the music therapist asked her what she wanted. And she said, Johnny Cash. And she started strumming Johnny Cash. And the woman sort of was responding, but not really. And I was speaking to her uh, son, who told me that she used to be uh, in in the church. And I I said this to the music therapist. And she played a song called All Other Ground is Sinking Sand. And and I'm I'm, I'm at spiritual. And I'm 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 a Jewish guy. I have no idea uh, what's going on. But I was so moved by this spiritual that I started joining in. So I think it all depends on on the person. Just like care, uh, music is is person centered, and what ends up uh, you know moving folks uh, is amazing. If I if I were to pick one, it would be Schubert. Uh, but you know I, you know the the sky's the limit in terms of what what's effective uh, for me. I would go for jazz. I don't know. I'm, well. I'm 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 with Johnny Cash. Will will the circle be unbroken? Johnny Cash, David. Okay. That's good. Well, I've got nothing. To, well, just consider that's going to be, uh, you know, an additional service we offer here on Cure Talk. You can record your advanced directive, at least as it as it relates to uh, to music. But I want to say, uh, Ido Bannock, President and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Thank you being a, thank you for being a guest today on Care Talk. Ido, I I'll, I'll always enjoy hearing your thoughts. You're you're helping us actually bring some civility and heart centered care to the healthcare system. Keep. Keep doing all the great work you're doing and pulling us back towards our, our roots as, as, as humans. Maybe that'll heal all of us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, John and David. Appreciate it. Great. Well, I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Centrics. If you like what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe on your favorite service.